Ashray Journal presents. Episode 23. Dr. Andrew Persley and Megan McNulty discuss the disconnects between design intent and performance when ventilating buildings and how ventilation theory and research play out in real-world applications. Great to see you, Megan. I'll look forward to the conversation today. My name's Andy Persley. I'm a mechanical engineer at the National Institute of Standards and Technology, where I've been for just over four decades, but but who's counting, right? And I've done research on building airflow, building air tightness, indoor air quality, both measurement methods and, and predictive tools. And I was going to ask you, Megan, how you got interested in ventilation, but I'll give you my answer first. So when I started all this stuff, all my work was about air tightness, measuring building air tightness, measuring infiltration rates, the rate at which air enters buildings from outside, you know, independent of the air handler, just driven by weather and, and a few other things. And so we installed these tracer gas systems, automated tracer gas systems that would inject tracer, measure the tracer gas decay rate 24-7 for weeks at a time so we could measure these infiltration rates at night when the system was off. We did not turn the tracer gas systems off during the day, so we started measuring ventilation rates with the system on. And it was like, well, lo and behold, they don't agree with the uh, design values, they don't agree with the standards, and they were all over the place. So that's kind of how I started with ventilation ventilation. And uh, there's more to that story, but Megan, what's your story? How'd you get into all this? Yeah. One of my first jobs as an entry-level engineer was to support LEED certifications for existing buildings. And one of the prerequisites for that program is you have to prove that the building today can comply with ASHRAE standard 62.1, meet the ventilation rates for acceptable indoor air quality. So I was having to like work backwards, take this design standard and apply it to an existing building. And I needed to know all of these inputs that are not documented. We don't know. Here's a system that's been running for 20 years and it's been reconfigured and there are different people in the spaces using it differently. And it just seemed like a mess. <laughs> it seems so inexact. So uh, I was interested in are there trends in this? How did this building come to be? What's the history? And actually, Andy, I was introduced to you by your paper about the history of ASHRAE standards 62.1 before I even met you. <laughs> so we've been having a ventilation conversation for even longer than you realize. I consider you like the historian of ventilation. You know, you know the whole history. So where did these rates come from? What's the background? How, how did we get here? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. The, the long answer would take more time than we probably have today. But I will point out in the ASHRAE journal that just came out a couple of days ago, I have a short little column that speaks to that issue about where they came from. But um, I'm not going to read that column right now. I'll, I'll give you the uh, thumbnail version. So when 1989 was, 62, 1989 was published, there was a lot of controversy that had to do with smoking and formaldehyde and a whole bunch of other things. And so ASHRAE realized they better start working on the revision right away. And at that point, they weren't on the three-year cycle to match the building codes. They were on no cycle. So a, a new committee was formed in 92, 
and I was lucky to be put on there. I wasn't all that experienced, and there were all sorts of smart people, researchers, real doctors, you know, um, fake doctors, you know, who had a PhD like me, and uh, manufacturers and so on. So one of the first tasks was, what should the rates be? And we looked at all the science. There was a lot of science going back to the 1930s on how people perceived body odor in spaces, you know, as a function of the ventilation rate and also as a function of the people and what they were doing. So we had that research. We kind of knew how much air you needed to control body odor. There was some more recent uh, research at that time on how much we needed to control the odors from building materials and furnishings. So we looked at all that and we talked and debated and argued for hours and hours and hours, even, you know, at multiple meetings to basically come up with the table of rates that um, are in the standard now with some modifications over the years. And I'll note that most of the research was from office studies in office buildings or chambers, but the table of rates covers offices, schools, conference rooms, you know, a million different space types. And we had to take the science we knew, and it was good science, and extrapolate it as best we can using our engineering judgment, right? That, that's the term we use. But as you read in the column, and despite what some people say, health was on the table, front and center, you know, and we even debated how much air you needed to control airborne infectious disease transmission and concluded we didn't know enough to set those rates. So, you know, there's a lot of misconceptions about the standard and the rates and where they came from. And, you know, we, we used the science, we used the practical experience, and there were a million different competing points of view that we had to wrestle with. So I worked on that, and then I uh, got punished by being made chair during that tough time. And uh, <laughs> I was going to say, didn't you have an important role in this? <laughs> well, you know, it was funny. There was a chair, and then our friend and colleague Steve Taylor was made chair. And then before one of the meetings, uh, Steve came up to me and said, Andy, they told me I have to have a vice chair. You don't have to do anything. Would you be vice chair? And I said, fine, fine. Little did I know, and little did he know, that when he finished his term, I was the logical choice. Uh, for better or worse, so. That always happens when you say yes to vice chair. It's dangerous. For that update in the early 90s, or, or even the 1989 version, that was a big change from the prior years, right? The 80s were maybe not the best time for ventilation in buildings. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the 89 standard was, I'll say, influenced, and that's not a bad thing, you know, by the realities of uh, the energy crisis, or we called it then. And so maybe they overreacted. I, I, I don't know. But the big change after 89 was that the committee was directed to write it in mandatory and enforceable language so the codes could more readily adopt it. So it become part of the building codes. And that was a big change. 1989 and the previous versions, the first one was in 73, had all sorts of interesting stuff interesting discussions of contaminants and all sorts of things, and a lot of shoulds. Starting in the revision that we started in 92, no more shoulds. It had to be shall or must and no more interesting discussions. It just had to have requirements where it was clear what you had to do to comply, and it was hopefully clear how they would be enforced. And that was, that was the other big change. Yeah, so now it's a minimum standard. It's 
the worst possible building you are legally allowed to build, no longer something to aspire to. And yet over time, it winds up being that the codes become the target. The codes become the thing we're trying to reach instead of what we're trying to surpass. Right, right. And so, yeah, you know, all the requirements are minimums. Anything below the requirements is illegal if it's adopted in the jurisdiction. People are free to do more. But, you know, I think as you implied, sometimes people see it as a maximum. You know, you can't do anymore. And that's, that's not the case. I don't know if you, you know, have discussions with clients where, you know, there's, there's a discussion of increasing the rates, increasing the filter efficiency. Does, does that ever come up? Yes. Um, I think, especially in light of the pandemic, there is much more of an awareness, an understanding that indoor air quality is something that's important. That's important to the people in the building. Ventilation is not just a nice to have when the weather is nice, but something that needs to be provided all the time. So it used to be much harder to make the case that this is an area where we should, we should be sure we're providing ventilation all the time. In, in these discussions where people realize ventilation is important and they read they should have more air, I mean, how hard is it to kind of educate them that, you know, their system has these capabilities and their climate has this much humidity in it? You might be able to go up this high, but you're not going to get some of these very, very high rates that some people are suggesting. Yeah, I think there is initially just resistance to change. Like, my system can't do that. It won't work. I know that. But when we dig a little deeper and we ask questions about how it was designed, how they operate it throughout the year, we find that there is some flexibility and there are always constraints. So I'm trying to find how is this building operating now and what are the ways it can do better and where is that upper limit? So for filtration, we often talk to building operators who are like, oh, no, I, I can't take MERV 13 filters. That will never work. And then you go to the next building and they'd say, oh, we've been using MERV 13 filters for years. No big deal. And we would look and the, the systems were pretty similar. The filters they were using were pretty similar. And when we looked at what the fans were capable of doing, it wasn't a technical problem. It was more of a perception problem or that expectation of better filtration wasn't there. And so that's something that has really changed. I think when it comes to ventilation, outdoor air is seen as sometimes this scary, expensive thing and a scary, expensive thing that will bring in all this terrible moisture and <laughs> destroy the building. So it's, it's often seen in its, in its negative. Yes, it can have too much moisture. Yes, it does take money and energy to condition it, but at times it doesn't. It doesn't take much money or energy to condition it. And it's actually the kind of temperature and humidity that we want in the space. So thinking beyond just that worst summer day, there's some flexibility. I mean, in these discussions, I'll call it of pandemic motivated changes to, to systems. I think part of me, I often say every building and system is unique. And I don't know if, if, Everyone is super unique, but you need to understand the system and how it was designed and its capabilities before you. I mean, as you've gotten a lot of experience, I guess that's not necessarily a ton of work, but it's it's essential, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's step one is, well, what do we even have here? 
often the system I'm looking at, the base building system was designed in one year, and then the distribution has been changed three other times, and then the tenant installed some system. And now it's a hodgepodge of all different systems that never really considered each other (laughs) operating together. So we do have to just kind of benchmark. Where are we and how do these systems interact? I was visiting a building where they had a daycare center. It was an office building. One area was a daycare center. And daycares, if you look in standard 62.1, they require more ventilation air than an office space. You have smaller people who are more active and more things going on. They need they need more air. <laughs> Yeah, art projects, aquariums, all sorts of craziness. Snack time. (laughs) Much more fun than the office building. Uh, And the the daycare and the office space next to it, they had the same outdoor air intake serving these two units. We were going to measure how much outdoor air is going to each one. We're doing this baseline assessment. And I stick the anemometer into the duct. And okay, that's a reasonable number. But notice that the air that I'm feeling is nice, cold. And this is the summertime in Florida, so it shouldn't be that temperature. It should be hot and humid. And it turned out that instead of outdoor air going to the daycare and the office, daycare air was going to the office. (laughs) And not really anything was coming in from out of doors. And, And no one knew how long had this been going on. Not sure, but we were we were able to fix it. But that baseline understanding, you know, we're, if we're talking about what ventilation rates should I achieve? Well, is the system working just at baseline to do what it is supposed to do? I often make the point, and I'm sure you do as well, you know, maybe adjusting the ventilation rates up or down or whatever that might have merit. But first, is the system operating as intended? Are are the ducts connected? Are the dampers functional and all that? Do that first before you get into some of these. I don't know if the amount of outdoor air is a fine point, but if the system isn't basically isn't functional, you know, you shouldn't be messing around with the rates, right? Yeah. Like zero outdoor air versus some outdoor air. That's that's a huge improvement compared to some and some plus five percent or then kind of getting into marginal gains there. If you go into buildings and you poke around and crawl around and and talk to people, you can't help but learn some interesting things. So you've done a lot of these uh, walkthroughs, crawlthroughs, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, what are some of the things you've learned in addition to the ones you just mentioned? Everything breaks and everything can break and everything will break. It's just a matter of when and I think the expectation that it was designed and installed and now it runs and it's perfect <laughs> is just not not true. Like I think about my car, things break on it and that's that's a standardized piece of equipment that's mass produced and we're working with one of a kind kind of complex machines that require a lot of human intervention and to think that everything will operate perfectly from day 1 and just keep on going that way seems unrealistic. But yet people kind of get upset when you say, ah, this isn't working right. And I think instead of being upset, it's, well, oh, hey, great, good catch. Now we can fix this and make this better. 
I mean, so it's all about operations and maintenance or O&M, and, and that shouldn't just improve your ventilation and indoor air quality. It's probably going to make your building more energy efficient because if the ventilation system is screwed up, the controls, whatever it is with the heating and cooling is probably out of whack too. That's going to break also. That's going to save money and make the building more comfortable, right? So you've looked at you've looked at the EPA's base study, and that's a big database of building information. What years and what types of buildings was that looking at? What is what does that information tell us? For the listeners who don't know, the EPA base study building assessment, and I don't remember what the S is, an evaluation. Look it up, EPA base. It was a study of a hundred randomly selected office spaces in the country. Part of the motivation was, this was kind of around late 80s, you know, everybody was stressed about sick building syndrome. And we knew about the buildings that had high levels of complaints. We didn't know about so-called normal buildings. So a complaint building, everyone had a headache or 50% of the people had a headache in the afternoon. Well, what do you see normally? Is that high or low? So they went to these 100 office spaces. I will note that they first planning meeting for the base study was the first trip I took after my daughter was born. And now she's designing HVAC systems in, in Colorado. And so we sat around and we came up with a protocol. I developed or took the lead on the protocol for evaluating uh, and inspecting the systems and the spaces and the ventilation assessment. So that's, that's all written up. And you know, I think one of the interesting things is, you know, as, as part of the evaluation, they had to write down the design minimum outdoor air intake, right? Well, in half the buildings, they couldn't find it. And I think they looked. I don't, I think it wasn't there. Was it out of date? If they could find it, I suspect so, right? So these building inspections and the measurements were in the mid 90s. They couldn't find the fan specs. Back then, they were on paper, and I did some work in buildings where you, if you really looked and got a short ladder and climbed on top of the air handler, you might see the fan specs all rolled up and covered with dust, but... Oh, yes. I know that. <laughs> yeah. But I think in some cases, they were just, had been tossed or something. In some buildings, they had them really well, easy to find. Everything was, you know, in nice shape. I often generalized back then that if the cleaner the mechanical room, the more likely the ventilation rates were in line with design, right? Because somebody was, you know, spending some time on things. So so we learned that 50% of the buildings, the minimum outdoor air design value was not available. A lot of the buildings were below the design value. I can't remember that percentage. But if you look at the data, a lot of them were above because of the economizer cycle. Awful lot of people, you know, out there, I'm not talking about the general public, I'm talking about indoor air quality research and other people who, who really think they might be interested in ventilation, don't even know that economizers are common, you know, where the outdoor air intake goes way up. And, and, you know, presumably when the air is clean and dry, unless the 
sensors are out of calibration, then you don't know when they're going to open up the dampers, right? I'm sure you've seen that and you're not in the friendliest climate for economizer operation in the summer, right? Well, depends. If your system's large enough, in the summer, sure. July, no. But here in Atlanta, the shoulder season's very nice. Even now in April, there's pollen. So ideally, you've got some filters to take care of that component. But temperature-wise, economizer mode is great right now. And in a lot of places now, it's even required. The energy efficiency standards and codes require that. So if you're only focused on the minimum ventilation rate at December and July, you're missing a big chunk of the picture because it varies throughout the year. And and I guess if the system's well-controlled, it can run economizer in the morning when it's cool and then go to minimum later on when it gets hot. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that approach of being dynamic and responding to conditions instead of set it and forget it will work a lot better. That's, that's how you can get energy efficiency and indoor air quality to be friends instead of enemies like a lot of people think they are. But I think they can work together. You know, a lot of people think it's an inherent conflict, energy efficiency and indoor air quality. And I guess it is if you have a very narrow view of things, but there's more to life than ventilation, right? Even though that's what we're talking about today. And as I did this research and measuring ventilation rates in buildings, I learned about this thing called controls, right? That's really important, you know, and, and it was a little bit beyond me. I was in a, involved in a study in the 80s of eight federal buildings around the U.S. where they were using more energy than somebody expected. And I don't know where their expectations came from. So that's where we were measuring infiltration rates and ventilation rates. And some of the systems there were a lot of pneumatic controls. I guess maybe they were starting to do digital controls in the 80s. I, I don't know. But there was, there was one building where there was a knob for outdoor intake. And I forget the name of the building operator. He would like turn that knob and he'd go across the street and have a cup of coffee and a piece of pie. And then he'd come back an hour later and see how things were running. You know, it was, it was totally manual and he, uh, he gave it some time to adjust. Controls may have advanced. But I've still seen the control for an outdoor air damper as the crowbar in someone's hand. (laughs) So there are great capabilities of digital control and actuators and automatically adjusting. But there is still a lot of a human element. Those buildings from the 80s, they're probably still around. A big chunk of the buildings that are going to be here in 2050 when we need to decarbonize, we already have them. So Maybe they need something a little more advanced than the crowbar or the knob. <laughs> and and I, I think I know the answer to this. I mean, you've, I'm sure you've seen lots of situations where there's a sophisticated and I'll, I don't know if I want to say high tech, but, you know, advanced control system that's been disabled by the human operators because they didn't understand it or they just couldn't get it to work right. Yeah, like it's in theory, this kind of complex control scheme is great. Everything is optimized, but the operator interaction isn't optimized. It's not clear what's going on. And if there's a little bit of a glitch, like, then we can't use it. Like it has to work all the time. So sometimes I think something that's simple and reliable, even if it doesn't capture every last kilowatt hour of energy efficiency. If it's going to work most of the time, that's a better way to go. 
And as engineers, I mean, we love high tech stuff, right? Of course. We love innovative things, you know, they're, they're cool. But, you know, whenever I hear about, you know, some new gizmo or new whatever it is that's going to be used in buildings, I'm, I always say, who's going to, who's going to take care of it? Who's going to maintain it? Well, we don't maintain the low tech stuff, right? And, and there's nothing, as you said earlier, there's nothing that won't break or go out of whack at some point. I always ask that question. One gizmo I do want to talk about is CO2 sensors. Whenever I hear CO2 readings, I think, uh-oh, we need to bring Andy into this <laughs> because there, there has been a, a lot of misunderstandings and misinterpretations of the readings, of CO2 readings in indoor spaces. And I have right here a little handheld CO2 meter that I'll carry around with me uh, and try to interpret what it means, but what are your thoughts on using CO2 indoors and having a lot of sensors to read CO2? Well, it's, it's, it's a tool, right? And as they say to the, the youngster with a hammer, not everything's a nail. That misinterpretation goes back a long time. I wrote a paper in 97 kind of trying to speak to that. What does it mean? What does it tell you? What does it not tell you? I don't think it's had much impact, you know, and I've given talks and, and so on. But now that we're seeing these consumer-grade sensors proliferate, a lot more measurements, a lot more interest, probably a lot more misinterpretation. You know, I, I don't know what to necessarily to do with that. You know, um, as I talked about tracer gas techniques earlier, the CO2 emitted by people, you know, is essentially a tracer gas. You can analyze the mass balance and, and back out. Uh, ventilation rates, even if they're very approximate, but you need to understand the assumptions and the theory and do the math correctly and all that. You know, and that's fine perhaps for a researcher or something, but a a teacher in a classroom or somebody putting one in their house, they're, you know, they're, that's not a reasonable expectation. So what do they do and how do they learn something useful? I mean, there's a couple things, you know, one is don't breathe on it, right? <laughs> The air that you exhale is 30, 40,000 ppm. So if, you, if that thing is too close for you, you're going to get an elevated reading. But, you know, that's probably not the biggest problem. It's what do you compare it to? Your meter was reading 850. And I know people who would look at that and freak out. And they go, oh, my gosh, it's 850. I got to get, I'm going to run outside and call 911. I don't know what the right number is. You know, I think it really depends. I know it depends on the space the number of occupants, what they're doing, and uh, what ventilation rate you want. You know, there's not a, a single ventilation rate. You can follow the standard. You can follow the recommendation that some smart person put out on the web. If you're using CO2 to verify the ventilation rate, what's the rate you're trying to verify? What's going on in the space in terms of occupants? And when are you measuring it? If you measure it five minutes after people show up, it's not going to have gone up very high. So you need to think about those things, which is probably, you know, more complex and more detailed than the consumer necessarily needs to hear or a homeowner necessarily needs to hear. We developed an online CO2 tool that allows you or an online tool that allows you to calculate the CO2 level you might expect in a space, given the occupancy and giving the target ventilation rate from standard 62.1 or standard 62.2, but you can and change all those inputs. Megan and I put together a little list of articles and, and 
things that people might want to look at, and you can read about that there. Yeah, I think that CO2 calculator that handles all the math for you is so great because I I once tried to do the calculation by hand and, well, unit conversions and all sorts of things, I gave up. (laughs) But you have this calculator that spits out, here's what you would expect to see at steady state for that geometry, that number of people, how active they are. And I really like that gives you a graph of not just what you're going to get in the end compared to another value, but how things change over time. And that's been really helpful for me to to put it in more realistic numbers. Like it's going to take seven hours of this many people in this space to get this high. So if I'm using a CO2 meter to judge is outdoor air enough in this space, yes or no, it's not going to know until the end of the workday when everyone leaves. So that's not going to work. And how many spaces are occupied continuously for seven hours? Not a lot. People take breaks, go to lunch or, or, or whatever. So you kind of have to deal with the occupancy you have and figure out the timing of all this. So I'm glad you found that useful. Is that something you show ever show owners or operators, or is that kind of more than they want to know? I think that's more than, than they want to know, but I use it with my colleagues uh, when we're planning out site visits. And especially now with a lot of office buildings have a lower occupancy than they used to. So if we have indoor air quality readings from the past 10 years, and we routinely measured, say, 800 to 1,000 parts per million in, in the space when the ventilation system was working, well, now there are half as many people. Like, what ballpark should we expect? And if we're still getting those numbers from before, but there are half as many people now, maybe maybe something's worth investigating a little more. But maybe everything's fine. Yeah. And if you have half as many people, can you dial back the outdoor air? I, I, especially early in the pandemic, people were talking about, we need more outdoor air per person. Well, there's two ways to do it. One is to bring in more air. And the other is to have less persons, you know, so you have the same amount of outdoor air, but you're dividing it by uh, 50% of the occupants. So all of a sudden you've doubled the CFM per person. Earlier on, you know, you noted that most buildings of the future exist today, but our standards, they're about new building design and the kind of the code process, the regulatory process sort of disengages after the, uh, Certificate of occupancy is granted. What do, what do we do about existing buildings? I know that's kind of where you spend your work day, right? That's such a good question. It's buildings are really unregulated. Once once the keys are turned over, you can kind of do whatever you want. Sadly, except, you know, your elevator needs to be inspected and the fire marshal has a final say, but but other than that, there's not a whole lot not a whole lot of requirements. There are some interesting trends in regulations for existing buildings for energy efficiency and carbon emissions. And a lot of jurisdictions have building performance standards. And ASHRAE also has a standard for a building performance standard, standard 100. But in these jurisdictions, they're saying, regardless of when your building was built, here is our expectation for your energy efficiency or your carbon emissions. And if you aren't there by this date, then what are you doing to improve? You need to show us that you did an energy audit or that you've implemented some projects. 
New York, Washington, D.C., Seattle, Washington State. Everyone's got a slightly different twist on how they're doing it. But I think what will come of that is we'll maybe learn a little more about how to make sure that ventilation gets included. And some of those programs do explicitly say, part of your energy audit, make sure the ventilation system is functioning and doing what it needs to do. There are some, I'll call them, more aware building owners who see the connection between good and their air quality and occupant satisfaction and occupant performance, and they have the budgets to do it right, and they really keep an eye on things. And they don't need to be regulated, right, because they're doing it anyway. But there's all these, you know, I'll say buildings more on the, the neglected end of the scale who don't have those budgets. You can think of school systems, you know, with who aren't as well financed as others or public housing or, or all sorts of places where there's just not a lot of money to do things right and keep things going. I, I, I often think about the neglected buildings and I, I don't know what we do, we do for them. But, but that's not an engineering issue. That's a societal economic issue that we're, we're not qualified to uh, address, I guess. But I think the fact that it is technically feasible, we can fix these buildings. We can provide that perspective so that people don't say, oh, this is impossible. This building can never be fixed. There might be. But for most buildings, what they have can be improved a little bit. I think for most buildings, it's not going to mean they need an entirely new system. It doesn't have to cost a fortune to do this, to get things back in order. Yeah. Somebody has to pay for it, whether it's the owner or the local jurisdiction or whatever. It's a tough one, but it's not impossible. My colleagues and I, we used ASHRAE's Epidemic Task Force resources and, and applied it to a lot of our clients' buildings to help make sure that they were meeting those recommendations. Is your ventilation system working? Can you upgrade your filters to MERV-13? A host of other items. And we found that at first pass, a little less than half the buildings were providing the right amount of ventilation. And then another like third could easily get there, you know, without too much cost or effort. It's just some of that basic operations and maintenance fixes. So combined, that's 75% of buildings should be able right now to provide the minimum ventilation rate, or they just need a little bit of work. There are some that, of course, there are some that are going to need a little bit more work, but a majority of our buildings just need a little bit of elbow grease to get where they need to be. Well, that's encouraging. You know, after people listening to this might have thought we just had a bunch of bad news, but uh, that's some good news. And, and something you said earlier reminded me that my mother's last job before she retired was a facility manager. Really? And I asked her, you know, well, what about indoor air quality? You know, is that an issue for you? And she said, well, sometimes, but the big issues are the uh, elevators that isn't working, the room that has to be locked where the lock is broken, and all these kind of mundane, it maybe isn't the right word, but immediate fires that have to get put out. And they don't have 
a lot of time and, and extra bandwidth to deal with indoor air quality. And I've, when I've given general indoor air quality talks, I make the point, there's a lot of things that can give you headaches at three o'clock in the afternoon. You know, yes, it can be an air contaminant, but it can be stress at work. It can be daycare challenges at home. It can be all sorts of things can, can make you feel crummy in the afternoon. It isn't necessarily the air. That's a good point about all of the demands on an operator's time. I'm coming into a building and I've, I'm laser focused on two things, indoor air quality and energy efficiency. And I don't need to worry about the locks. <laughs> and I'm not really focused on the fire system or the special event that tenants are holding. So having someone come in and just focus on those issues and then distill what's the key thing that needs to be fixed or is everything kind of okay? I think that really helps because there, there are a lot of things on their plate. So Megan, you just made a great point about building operators and the different demands in their time. And, you know, while we've talked about buildings that might not be operated very well, there's a lot of really smart, conscientious building operators out there who really want to do the right thing and, and work very hard at it. And when I, you know, was doing research studies in, in office buildings primarily, I met a lot of really excellent folks who are operating buildings. I often observed that the really good ones got kicked upstairs into management positions, right? <laughs> and, and weren't operating the building anymore, which was really a shame because they knew they had little sticky notes in the sequence of operations and they knew the ins and outs and they got, they had that building running right, but they were so bright that they made them wear a tie and you never saw them again. It's funny you say that. The last site visit I was on, the operator actually was on vacation. So we had a scheduling <laughs> mishap. Um, so instead, someone who was more senior from the region was assigned to walk me around. And he used to be the operator at that building. So he's very familiar with all the systems. And the first thing we do, we look at the control systems and we find out, oh, three of the six units? Outdoor air dampers are not open or reading zero CFM or it doesn't appear to be communicating. And I didn't have to do anything. Immediately, he was like, oh, that is not good. This is not right. Let me go talk to people. Um, we saw his colleagues later and he was like, hey, so what do you know about the outdoor air dampers? You know, those have to be open. This is this is for people's health. And I was just, uh. My heart was so warmed. I, I was so excited. And we had a, a great visit, just sharing ideas. And I'm glad that he has that regional position because then he can share that knowledge with everyone else that, that he works with. But yeah, there, there, are some, there are some great operators out there. And, you know, studying the plans, doing computer simulations, all that stuff might provide some insight. But there's nothing like talking to the people in the building, whether it's the occupants or, or the operators, and because and, you're going to learn things that have never been written down. I was uh, involved in, in a building. It was a, one of these sick building syndrome situations from the 80s or 90s. And I can't remember what the problem was, but we could not figure it out. And we looked and we poked around and talked to people and couldn't figure it out until one day because of some vacation schedule, the guy who operated the building at night was working the day shift. And I had never met him before. And I 
I, I asked him what you know what's the deal with this and he go oh yeah 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 every night at eight o'clock I do this or whatever it was and no one on the day shift knew what the deal was he <laughs> knew and he happened to be there and then that solved the problem another little story that I'm sure you've experienced you know we would install these elaborate air sampling systems and, and as part of our research studies and it would require us to go for all the different mechanical rooms and we really our life was much easier when we got a master key but nobody wants to give you a master key right but, but when they saw you crawling around and covered with dust and working your tail off they would like oh that's like a real person here's the key you know and and you, you develop some credibility by showing that you're uh you know, you're a hard worker and willing to get your hands dirty, right? You mm-hmm. run into that? Yeah, I'm I'm invested in solving this problem, even if that means I'm now covered in dust and uh, I found a, a dead lizard and <laughs> all kinds of things. So what's some of the favorite things you found above a suspended ceiling when you were uh, poking around a building? Um, a donut box. <laughs> Any donuts or? Uh, I I didn't look. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I mean, it's a great place to find flashlights, tools, and all, all sorts of things. But it's a little risky to just kind of reach your hands up there and, and feel around because it might not be pleasant, right? Yeah, you want a good headlamp for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Megan, I just remembered this great article you wrote in the Esri Journal last year. You were looking at some older buildings. I mean, old is relative, like 80s, 90s vintage or something. Can you help me remember My colleagues and I were looking at buildings from the 1980s that were designed probably to that older version of 62, of the the very low ventilation rates after the energy crisis. And we were doing a feasibility study of what would it take to meet today's ventilation rates? How do we bring this whole building up to today? And you know, these systems were about 30 years old, so it's kind of time to update, replace anyway. And we found these issues because we were looking at epidemic task force guidance applied to these buildings, and they wanted to be able to tell their tenants, hey, yeah, we meet ASHRAE standards. And then we found out, oh, no, <laughs> you don't. So how do, we, how do we fix this? And because every building is its own unique situation, it was complex. There were a lot of factors we had to take into account, you know, how equipment was configured and how much tenant space could be intruded upon by more equipment. And so we had these two buildings. And once we looked at our decision-making process, we realized there were commonalities. So we could kind of create a process to follow to figure out what options would work. Whether you're going to put in one new central system or you're going to have distributed systems or distributed adjustments to systems throughout. And then what's the cost? Like at the end of the day, the owners, they want to know cost and construction schedule. Like the details of the mechanical systems, yeah, yeah, that's that's fine. But but what's it going to cost? And do I have to bother my tenants or can this be done without anyone realizing it? And those were two, two big factors. But I, I think the big takeaway is that it is possible 
to retrofit buildings instead of saying, oh, no, we can never get there. We should be saying, well, how how can we bring buildings up to the latest standard of 62.1? What are our options? And how can we not do it, right? Responsibly, you know, not bring them up to where they're supposed to right. be. So this whole process, I mean, you have it, it's in your head, it's in the head of your colleagues. I mean, could that ever be developed into some, I don't know, elaborate flow chart, measure this, look at this, and then go to step, you know, 15? Or, or is, we don't want to put you out of a job, but... Uh, <laughs> That's what we tried to do. Like here, let's evaluate the cooling capacity of the central plant, evaluate the cooling capacity of the air handler. Just so many different steps, so many different things to think through. If you need to increase the air coming in, what are you doing about the air going out? Is the toilet exhaust system sized appropriately for this new version? Like there are just so many components. So we tried to capture everything. So if someone else is doing this, they can replicate this process or at least point to this and say, did I hit some of the same major points that they did? That makes sense. You know, I, I used to, or I still do, but I would get questions from colleagues in the research field. They're doing a study of these schools or whatever buildings, an indoor air quality study. And they ask me, you know, how do I measure ventilation? You know, and I used to sort of kind of wing it and say it depends. And now I say, let, well, let's sit down and talk about it, you know, and get a piece of paper and tell me about your building. Tell me about your systems and I'll maybe I can help you figure out how to measure ventilation. But you gotta, you've got to understand what's going on before you can understand what's going on, right? What, what do you think are some of the trends in research that are going to be really helpful going forward? I mean, I think the, there's, there's more research all the time that's focusing on the people. And how they react both physiologically and psychologically to different features of a space. I mean, that, that's important. I mean, it's all about the occupants, right? Buildings don't exist to have low utility bills that you can brag about. They exist for people to work or learn or heal or whatever, or have a good time. And so it's, it's all about the people, all about the occupants. Right. I think that's the hardest part is the people component. We know physics and psychometrics and we can do all kinds of math equations, but people are a huge variable. The Ashray Journal podcast team is managing editor Kelly Barraza, producer and associate editor Chad Jones, assistant editor Caitlin Beish, associate editor Tani Pilevsky, and technical editor, Rebecca Matasovsky. Copyright ASHRAE. The views expressed in this podcast are those of individuals only and not of ASHRAE, its sponsors, or advertisers. Please refer to ashrae.org forward slash podcast for the full disclaimer.